you are turning to the book of Obadiah in your Bibles and looking for that. Uh, I wonder if I could get a little bit of help in the back there. If you did not get a study guide uh, that you can have in your hand, would you raise your hand? We'll put one in it. Give you a study guide. If you didn't get one, let me see who you are and we'll put a study guide in your hand so that you can follow along with this a little bit. Obadiah, one of the minor prophets. If you can't find it, find Psalms. When you find Psalms, which is about in the middle of your Bible, turn right. Go past the big guys. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, Daniel. And if you got that far, you're getting very warm. Just keep moving a little bit further. Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah. It takes about one page in most Bibles. So it's easy to miss. I was telling the 8 o'clock service this morning, uh, one of the most uh, embarrassing moments of my uh, public ministry occurred very shortly after um, my graduation uh, from my training. And I went to a church in Eastlake, um, Alliance Church in Birmingham, Alabama. And uh, I think it was maybe my first time to preach there after uh, I had been uh, interviewed And I was preaching this particular Sunday, and I wanted to read Zephaniah 3.17 for the audience. And so I said, turn with me in your Bibles to Zephaniah chapter 3. I was using my old Thompson chain reference, and Zephaniah, even at uh, several chapters, only takes up one page. And I could not find it at all, ever. I looked with embarrassment for several minutes. I kept turning past it. I uh, found it after the service and verified that it was in my Bible. I thought maybe it had been torn out or something. And uh, my face was crimson, and I thought, never again will I turn to a minor prophet without a bookmark. So, I just want you to know, you know, if you have trouble finding Obadiah, it's okay. Um, you'll get there eventually. Just uh, turn the pages till you're there. For those of you just joining us, we're in our uh, second prophet, our third message in a series of the minor prophets. Remember, they're minor because they're short, not because they're insignificant, because they're very important. Their messages are very profound for us. And I want you to follow along in your Bible as I read Obadiah. I won't say chapter one because there's only one chapter. The vision of Obadiah, thus says the Lord God concerning Edom. We have heard a report from the Lord, and an envoy has been sent among the nations, saying, Arise and let us go against her for battle. Behold, I will make you small among the nations. You are greatly despised. The arrogance of your heart has deceived you. You who live in the clefts of the rock, in the loftiness of your dwelling place, who say in your heart, Who will bring me down to the earth? Though you build high like the eagle, though you set your nest among the stars, from there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. If thieves came to you, if robbers by night, how you would be ruined. Would they not steal until they had enough? If grape gatherers came to you, would they not leave gleanings? Oh, how Esau will be ransacked and his hidden treasures searched out. All the men 
allied with you will send you forth to the border. And the men at peace with you will deceive you and overpower you. They who eat your bread, they will set an ambush for you. There's no understanding in him. Will I not on that day, declares the Lord, destroy wise men from Edom and understanding from the mountains of Esau? Then your mighty men will be dismayed, O Teman, in order that everyone may be cut off from the mountain of Esau by slaughter. Because of your violence to your brother Jacob, you will be covered with shame and you will be cut off forever. On the day that you stood aloof, on the day that strangers carried off his wealth and foreigners entered his gate and cast lots for Jerusalem, you too were one of them. Do not gloat over your brother's day, the day of his misfortune. And do not rejoice over the sons of Judah in the day of their destruction. Yes, do not boast in the day of their distress. Do not enter the gate of my people in the day of their disaster. Yes, you Do not gloat over their calamity in the day of their disaster. And do not loot their wealth in the day of their disaster. And do not stand at the fork of the road to cut down their fugitives. And do not imprison their survivors in the day of their distress. For the day of the Lord draws near on all nations. As you have done, it will be done to you. Your dealings will return on your own head. Because just as you drank on my holy mountain... All the nations will drink continually. They will drink and swallow and become as if they had never existed. But on the Mount Zion, there will be those who escape. And it will be holy. And the house of Jacob will possess their possessions. Then the house of Jacob will be a fire and the house of Joseph a flame. But the house of Esau will be as stubble. And they will set them on fire and consume them. So there will be no survivor at the house of Esau, for the Lord has spoken. Then those of the Negev will possess the mountains of Esau, and those of Shephelah, the Philistine plain. Also they will possess the territory of Ephraim, and the territory of Samaria, and Benjamin will possess Gilead. And the exiles of this host of the sons of Israel who are among the Canaanites as far as Zarephath, And the exiles of Jerusalem who are in Sepharad will possess the cities of the Negev. The deliverers will ascend Mount Zion to judge the mountain of Esau, and the kingdom will be the Lord's. You know, Obadiah is one of the shortest books in the Bible. And it's also a a very difficult book to place chronologically. When you read through it, you wonder what in the world is it really about. Something about Edom being bad and and who knows why. And uh, you may at first glance think, what in the world does this short little prophecy in the Old Testament have to do with me? But one of the lessons we learn from the New Testament is, all the things written in the old times were written for our instruction and for our benefit. And actually, as we get into the book of Obadiah this morning, we're going to find out that there is a message here for us right now, today, in 2010, that is powerful. And a message that God wants to speak to our hearts about our attitudes when other people are suffering. What do we know about Obadiah? Well, not much. 
Uh, we know that his name means servant, servant of the Lord. But other than that, we don't know when he lived. We don't know where he came from. We don't know his town. There's just hardly anything we know about Obadiah, except that he gave us these 21 verses, predominantly of prophecy against Edom. In fact, uh, Old Testament scholars are very divided even over the time of writing. You know, I told you I was going to preach through the minor prophets in chronological order, uh, not the order that they were in the Bible. And I was following uh, Dr. Smith's outline in Old Testament survey. And actually, uh, Obadiah is one of the earliest books that he has listed way back there in the 800s. Uh, I've come to find out, and I'll explain it a little more uh, later, that I think this really is a, is a exilic, slightly post-exilic book, meaning in the 500s, but I'll tell you more about that in a minute. Scholars have placed it anywhere between 899 B.C. and 312. That's 600 years of Old Testament history. It's like, where does this guy fit? And they're all over the page on, on where he belongs. But one of the things that stands out is this destruction that came upon Jerusalem that Obadiah is talking about, and the fact that Edom was kind of happy about it. And if you look back to the middle of your Bible, to Psalms 137, if you look back there, you will find an interesting psalm that was written about the Babylonian captivity. Now let me just take a moment after you find that. After I find it, let me just take a moment to remind you of some Bible history. Remember I told you two weeks ago that the kingdom was divided north and south. The, the northern kingdom had its capital in Samaria and became known as Israel. The southern kingdom had its capital in Jerusalem and it was known as Judah and included the tribes of Judah and Benjamin. And remember, the Assyrians came and destroyed the northern kingdom in 722 B.C. And about 150 years later, the Babylonians came and destroyed the southern kingdom. 586 B.C., they rolled into Jerusalem and uh, laid siege to the city and took captive the southern kingdom of Judah. So 586 is the time of the destruction of Jerusalem and Judah by the Babylonians. And Psalm 137 was written about it. By the rivers of Babylon, there we sat down and wept. When we remembered Zion, upon the willows in the midst of it, we hung our harps. You know, the Jewish people have always been musical. Even today, uh, when, when you, when you uh, often hear great violinists, great pianists, great musicians... Uh, they have a Jewish heritage. They've always had music in their hearts. I think it's one of God's gifts to Israel. And uh, yet, when they were carried off captive to Babylon, it says they hung their harps in the willow trees. And uh, they just kind of hung them up and didn't have any more to sing about. And it says, We hung our harps there, for there our captors demanded of us songs, and our tormentors mirth, saying, Sing us one of the songs of Zion. How can we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? If I forget you, O Jerusalem, may my right hand forget her skill. May my tongue cleave to the roof of my mouth. If I do not remember you, if I do not exalt Jerusalem above my chief joy. And then there's this interesting verse. Remember, O Lord, 
against the sons of Edom the day of Jerusalem when they said, raise it, raise it to its very foundation. That's one of the prophecies mentioned in the book of Obadiah, that the Edomites were hanging around as Jerusalem was falling, saying, level it to the ground, just do away with the city. And the captives are crying out, oh God, don't forget Edom. Well, after studying all of this and contemplating it for a while, I've become personally convinced that the prophecy of Obadiah was issued about the time of the fall of Jerusalem to Babylon. There are a number of Old Testament scholars who disagree, who agree with me, and there are a number who disagree. So, so you can uh, read all of the surrounding scriptures and make your own decision about that. It won't change the message. It won't change the message, and the message is a powerful one. It's a prophecy against Edom, uh, the small nation of Esau's lineage. You remember Esau? Jacob's twin brother, Rebekah, was pregnant with twins, the wife of uh, Isaac, and uh, they were already struggling in the womb. And when they were born, uh, Esau came out first, but <laughs> Jacob had his hand around his heel, you know, was hanging on to him, and uh, ended up being called Jacob, which means heel grabber or swindler, uh, more the idiomatic uh, usage of that. But nonetheless, after their, their childhood and young adult struggles, eventually they came to terms. And when Jacob returned from Laban's home with his large family that became the nation of Israel, he was able to make peace with his brother Esau by the grace of God, and they essentially lived in peace for all the rest of the time. There was a moment during the Exodus when the Edomites didn't want them passing through their territory. I'll tell you more about that in a minute, too. But uh, for the most part, these two nations got along mostly okay for their history. And so it's really strange why the Edomites were so vicious and vindictive when Jerusalem finally fell to her captors. Well, let's look at the message of Obadiah. Obviously, it's a prophecy against Edom. There are other passages of Scripture that, that call this to mind. Notice what it says in the book. Look, for example, in um, verse 11 of Obadiah. On the day that you stood aloof, on the day that strangers carried off his wealth and foreigners entered his gate and cast lots for Jerusalem, you too were one of them. Do not gloat over your brother's day, the day of his misfortune, and do not rejoice over the sons of Judah. Edom was a nation that was noted for some very interesting things. One thing it was noted for was amazing wisdom. There were wise men in Edom. So wise that their fame kind of carried abroad. And people would talk about the wise men of Teman. That led to kind of a national arrogance. They also dwelled, if you look at a map and you look at uh, Palestine and Jerusalem, you can imagine it there to the east of the Mediterranean, on the, to the border of the eastern Mediterranean, 
and you go down just a little bit from Jerusalem to the south and a little bit to the east, not very far is the nation of Edom where the descendants of Esau lived. And they were kind of acclaimed for their, for their brilliance. They lived in the hillsides, in the, the rocky areas and cliffs. And one of the fascinating things about the little nation was they controlled 71 miles of the king's highway or a major passage through that region. And guess what they did? Like driving on I-294. They set up toll booths. And you had to pay a toll to go through the highway. And so they controlled access of people traveling on the highway through their territory and gained revenue for themselves. And they thought they were pretty shrewd. In fact, even though they were a small country, their sense of national pride and arrogance was such that they boasted early on in Obadiah's prophecy, who could bring us down? And you remember that God says, I will bring you down. You know, friends, we need to realize that no one person or country ever comes to the place where they're so powerful, so smart, so brilliant, so prosperous that God can't deal with them. All it takes is one stroke of the brush in the course of history. I was talking to Dan yesterday, and he, you know, he was uh, coming back from Europe when uh, Elifalujico, or however you say that, in Iceland was erupting, and the the uh, volcanic ash was floating over England and and northern Europe, and people were stuck. You know, he was saying, I wonder if I should just buy a house and live here, you know. <laughs> Maybe he's stuck here for who knows how long. One volcano erupts and it shuts down air traffic on the continent of Europe and intercontinental travel. It doesn't take much to bring the mighty down. And God says to Edom, I don't care how smart you think you are. You come up in your arrogance and say, I cannot be overcome, I'll bring you down, says the Lord. I'm going to deal with you. So, what's the story with Edom? Well, here's the thing. You know how God had told the Israelites, if you don't turn to me, I'm going to judge you. The northern kingdom never listened and they were carried off by Assyria. The southern kingdom, Judah, had some times of revival, but largely they kept going back to the wicked ways of idolatry and rebellion. And so finally, the prophets began to prophesy that Babylon was going to be the instrument of God to bring judgment upon them, and that they were going to be carried captive to Babylon. In fact, the prophecies were so specific as to say, after 70 years, I will bring you back. So Babylon was going to be God's instrument for bringing judgment on the Israelites, on the, on the southern kingdom of Judah. And Babylon was 
though they were behaving in an ungodly way, they were actually being used in the sovereignty and providence of God to bring judgment on Jerusalem and Judah. The day came when their armies moved in and laid siege against Jerusalem. They tore down the gates. They began to to, uh, take the people captive. Of course, it was a horrible moment. People were dying. It was a battle. Women and children were dying. The, the Babylonians were not overly kind. They weren't as wicked as the Assyrians, but they still weren't very nice. And what do you do when, when a city is laid siege by a foreign power and the army starts to rush in? What do the people do? They run for their lives. They try to get away. Babylon is coming this way into Jerusalem. The people are fleeing south into the hills. Doesn't that make sense? There's a place to hide. Sure, it makes sense. Guess what Edom did? They blocked the path. They put down the gates. They put their army on the front. And when the people from Jerusalem, their ancient brothers began to run for their lives, they stood in the way and thrust them back into the jaws of the Babylonians. They would not let them escape. Can you imagine that kind of heartlessness? They they just had no time for them. They just shoved them back. Furthermore, as if to add insult to injury, some of the Armies and people of Edom were hanging around outside Jerusalem while the Babylonians were running it over, shouting taunts. Level it to the ground! Burn it all down! Tear their place completely apart! And the minute the dust settled, the Edomites rushed in to loot and plunder the city and take everything they could from their northern neighbors. God was not happy with that. You say, what's the big deal? Weren't they under the judgment of God? (laughs) Wasn't this appropriate? I mean, they were joining God, dealing with Judah. Ah, here's the problem. God intended to use the Babylonians to deal with Judah. Edom jumped in on the bandwagon as opportunist. They could have had a very different attitude. They could have taken a totally different direction, but they didn't. Instead, they, they, they rejoiced gleefully with a sadistic mirth that Jerusalem was being overrun by the Babylonians and they stood to gain advantage. And when God's people were suffering, don't forget they were still God's people. When God's people were suffering, the Edomites were plundering them and adding misery to their calamity. God says, I am going to deal with you. You think you're smart. You think you're wise. You think you've got it made. You think you're unassailable. He says, you will disappear from the face of the planet and no one will ever hear from you again. I do not like the way you've acted toward Jerusalem. 
my people, and my city. The truth of the matter is, Edom eventually became known as the region of Idumea in the time of Christ. That was the region south of Jerusalem that was called the Idumean region. And not long after the first century, after Jerusalem was in fact overrun again by the Romans in the time of Titus, the Edomites dropped off the face of the planet. They dropped out of history, and they've never been heard from since. (laughs) That's what he says. Uh, You will disappear from the face of the earth. I will wipe you off, and no one will ever hear from you again. There will be no survivor of the house of Esau. Esau is gone from the planet because of the way she treated Jerusalem. Now, what are the lessons for us? Why is this little book so important? Well, Obadiah is never quoted in the New Testament. Nearly every Old Testament book is, but Obadiah is never quoted in the New Testament. You won't find one verse quoted in the New Testament. Nor is there any clear prophetic reference to Jesus Christ in the book of Obadiah. But there is a spirit about Obadiah that is clearly taught in the New Testament, in the age of grace and God's mercy toward us. And here's the deal. Edom was guilty of jumping into the, into the fray when God was bringing judgment on Israel when Edom had nothing to do with it. She was gloating over her brother's punishment. I remember a time when I was a child. I'm trying to figure out if this was my cousin or my brother. I had a cousin the same age as me, and my brother was a few years younger. And I don't remember who it was, honestly. But I, I do remember that I had gotten into trouble. We were in one of those altercations. And that was in the days when parents spanked their children. And uh, I'm sure none of you ever do that now, right? <laughs> don't comment on that. I'll just let that one lie. But anyway... Uh, that was in those days, you know, and I, it, it was obvious that, that a spanking was coming. And I can remember, whether it was my brother or my cousin, I can remember him saying, Whip him, Mama! Whip him! <laughs> and I thought, thanks a lot! You're not helping me out here at all. They're not in trouble. They're going to escape the wrath. And so they're egging the problem on. Whip him, Mama! Whip him! Well, this was kind of what Edom was doing. You know, and I can remember uh, my mom in situations like that turning and saying, you shut up, this has nothing to do with you. Edom was a bystander. Edom was a peer. Edom was a neighbor. There are things Edom could have done that God would not have opposed. Yes, Judah was in trouble. Yes, she was being judged. Yes, the Babylonians were going to take her captive, but Edom could have been there to provide blessing and help and and refuge for the fleeing fugitives. Edom could have done good toward the, the residents of Jerusalem and been of help to them 
and help them recover. God's intention was not to destroy Jerusalem from the face of the map, but to send her into captivity for discipline and restore her. And Edom could have been a part of that care and protection in the interim. Instead, she took advantage of that time of judgment in Judah's life. How does that relate to us? Well, I want to bring some current events up for us to consider and see if we don't fail the attitude test. When a practicing homosexual develops AIDS, what are many Christians likely to say? Serves them right. They're getting what they deserve. They don't need my help. That's God's punishment on them. What about when a pregnant woman doesn't want her pregnancy, has an abortion, and things go badly, and she's in trouble and now suffering because of the procedure? Ah, she got what she deserved. That's just what comes on people who sin against God. What about the hurricane that struck New Orleans, Louisiana, and the North Gulf Coast? There was even one goofy guy on national television that said, This is God's judgment on the city of sin for their rebellion and their sinfulness. God sending His judgment on New Orleans. Maybe so. Bourbon Street was not the nicest street on the community, in the community or in the face of America. More recently in Haiti, people have said, oh, they got what they deserved. That disaster that fell upon them, that was a nation given over to witchcraft and voodoo and, and demons, and they got everything they ought to get. Is that not... Sometimes the attitude of the church. Do we not find ourselves sometimes casting a jaundice eye and saying, you know what? What came to you is because of God's judgment and you deserve it and I got nothing to do with it. Maybe we don't plunder them. Maybe we do. But oftentimes our hearts are hard toward those who are suffering, even when it is legitimately the wrath of God. What ought to be our attitude? And how are we to look upon that? Well, first of all, within the body of Christ, Ephesians 4, 30-32, one of the things the Scripture says is, be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving each other just as God in Christ has forgiven you. Think about that for a moment. How has God forgiven you? How much has He washed away from your slate? How much has He cleansed you from sin? How little have you paid the price that you ought to have paid for your rebellion? Be kind one to another, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ has forgiven you. And then in the book of Romans, chapter 14, the Scripture says, 
Do not judge another man's servant. To his own master he stands or falls. And standing will for God is able to make him stand. Speaking of believers. But the scripture also says, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Friends, judgment belongs to God, not to us. We are all in the same soup. We have all sinned against a holy God. Some of us have discovered the grace and mercy of God in Jesus Christ, and we have been forgiven through His blood. Others still don't know that message. But all of us, apart from the saving grace of Jesus Christ, deserve the wrath of God. Judgment is the Lord's prerogative. It isn't mine. And I need to take care that I don't jump on the bandwagon. You know, even the, the purpose of church discipline, when you, when you study that in the Scriptures and even in our, in our documents within our local church, uh, the, the Uniform Policy on Discipline and Appeal, the, the purpose of discipline is always restoration. It is never punishment. It is always restoration. Even the writer of Hebrews brings this out, and uh, I, I believe it's chapter 12 when he says discipline for the moment does not seem to be good. In fact, it's painful and it, and it hurts and we don't like it. But afterward, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. God's goal in the life of the believer is to make us look like Jesus, which brings us great internal joy in harmony with Him when we're hearing, Well done, my good and faithful servant from the Lord. And His goal is to make us like Christ. Punishment was taken by Jesus on the cross. And for the believer, there is now no more punishment or guiltiness of sin. Only the discipline of the Lord that is aimed at healing. We need to be careful to leave judgment in the hands of God and to act with the grace of God to those who are struggling in calamity. There's another important thing here that we we need to discern. We know when God was bringing judgment in the Scriptures because we had prophets of God to tell us so. But you don't know when God is bringing judgment today unless you happen to be a prophet from God speaking with divine authority. And I know the goofballs on TV weren't. They were just kind of talking out of their ear. You need to realize that you cannot say with certainty apart from divine revelation whether a catastrophe or calamity in a person's life or in a nation or a city is because of the judgment of God or because it is a natural disaster or even because it is the adversary coming against them who is the destroyer. You know, when that storm came up on the Sea of Galilee and Jesus was asleep in the boat and the disciples woke Him up and said, Lord, we're perishing. 
Do you remember that he got up on the bow of the boat and said, this is an act of God. There's nothing we can do about this. That's what's in your insurance clause, right? He got up on the bow of the boat and said, I rebuke the wind and the waves. We need to take care with our theology. Jesus would not have been rebuking the hand of his father. He clearly perceived that storm as an assault against them. And every time there's a storm, it does not mean it is an act of God to bring judgment. Maybe an act of the enemy to bring destruction. It may have some other malicious purpose. It may just be the fact that we live in a sinful world and all creation is suffering from the result of the fall, even though no one in particular is the cause of it. I remember a time when I was in Birmingham, and I was driving home uh, from the church there in Eastlake, and I was headed to uh, our home in Centerville about six miles away. And uh, the weather was really bad. It was one of those afternoons like we have occasionally, and I was listening to the radio on the way home, and there came the announcement there was a tornado sighted just north of Birmingham. It was en route toward the city. Um, uh, they were saying take shelter, and they were telling everybody to get out of the, the taller buildings and find shelter, and that it was definitely coming. And I, and I remember saying, God, what do you want me to do? And I very distinctly was impressed. Pray for the deliverance of Birmingham. Pray that the storm will pass by it. And I prayed that. And I don't think I was the only one praying that. Don't hear something here that I'm not saying. But I think uh, many people were praying. And, and what I heard next on the news was astounding. The tornado had disappeared in the Storm clouds were moving around the south of the city, bypassing it, and it was like, wow. And I very clearly sensed that God wanted to deliver the city. And those believers who cried out to him got the word, pray for deliverance. Were there people in Birmingham that deserved the judgment of God? Of course there were. People in every city and town that do. But God's desire often is mercy. In fact, he tells us in his word, I take no delight in the punishment of the wicked. They will be punished. God's holiness and his righteousness demands it. There is a hell that is coming. There is a lake of fire. And God has done everything he can do throughout history including the, the, the sending of His own Son and His death on the cross to avert the disaster because we're also told in the Word He is long-suffering, not willing that any should perish because God does not desire anyone to be lost but come to a knowledge of the truth. We have a message of reconciliation. We have a message of salvation. Friends, when people are going through sickness... You know, sometimes the Scripture says people are sick because they have sinned. There is a direct correlation between their sin and their sickness. But that isn't true every time. Sometimes people are sick because we live in a fallen world and they just happen to get sick. 
Sometimes people are sick because the enemy has brought an infirmity upon them. Jesus healed many who were sick, but there are occasions where he cast out the spirit of infirmity. And maybe that was because of sin or not, but they were under a demonic kind of oppression. And in some interesting cases, the disciples had that mindset, if you're sick, you must have been bad, God's punishing you. And they came across a man born blind and they asked the question, Lord, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he should be born blind? That's pretty much a dumb question unless you're convinced infants can sin in the womb. I'm not going to get into original sin here at this moment, but uh, it's pretty difficult to commit an act of sin in the womb. Who sinned, this man or his parents, that he should be born blind? And Jesus said, neither one. Now, clearly he didn't mean that they had neither one ever sinned. He just meant there was no cause and effect between their sin and this blindness. But he said, this has come about for the glory of God because I'm here and I'm about to heal him. And God is going to be praised. And this is going to be great rejoicing. We have to be very careful about figuring out in our head, oh, that person's under the judgment of God. Can you say with relative certainty that if a person has a homosexual lifestyle and gets AIDS, that they got what was coming to them? Probably. You can probably say that. That's one of the risks of that behavior. How should we respond? Friends, our hospital in Bangalore, West Africa, where Dr. David Thompson works and many others treats thousands with AIDS every year. Some of them have AIDS because they have behaved immorally. Some of them have AIDS because their parents behaved immorally. Some of them have AIDS because they have had other communication of bodily fluids besides sexual intercourse with those who have sinned and they are not responsible directly for their problem. But the hospital treats all comers. And they care for them. And they love them. And they treat them. And they have retrovirus uh, to offer them. And they do surgery on them if they're in pain. Because even though they have AIDS, they can be relieved of suffering by surgeries. In fact... Dr. Thompson, not too many years ago, while doing surgery, nicked his finger through double gloves, working in the body of an AIDS patient. And there was a great cry for prayer that went up for him for healing. And the retrovirus was administered and we began to pray for him. And to this day, several years later, he is still clear of any HIV infection, but the fact is, he was willingly operating on an AIDS patient in a primitive environment in West Africa out of love. And what happens? You know, here's an interesting thing. Most people in the throes of divine judgment 
recognize their sin. Did you know that? When most people are hurting and they know they've caused it by their own actions, they become aware of God's judgment. They know they've done wrong. You don't have to tell them. What they need in that moment is an extension of grace to say God loves you and He can save you and He can give you eternal life because He does not want you to die from this and perish eternally. And over 800 people have come to Christ in the last year in that hospital because they are filled with love and compassion. Some people find themselves in bankruptcy because they have foolishly overextended their credit. They bought plasma TVs and new cars and fancy clothes and all kinds of toys. And even though the the, uh, debt reduction companies are saying, you don't really owe any of that money back. We can get you out of all this trouble. Uh, Some people find themselves in bankruptcy because they have acted foolishly in their suffering. But I remember when 120 was under construction for well over a year and some businesses failed because their customers couldn't get in and out and that was certainly not their fault. And some people who were not able to afford health insurance have an accident at home or some trauma and find themselves with hundreds of thousands of dollars of hospital bills that they can't possibly pay and they're forced into bankruptcy because of that trauma We need to be careful about thinking we've got it all figured out. In fact, judgment belongs to God. And really, in the final analysis, whether a person has contributed to their problem by their sinful behavior or whether they are simply living in a fallen world is between them and God. But we have a mission, and our mission is to show compassion. Our mission is to extend love. Our mission is to show grace and to offer the hope that is in Jesus Christ. The Edomites could have opened the gates and forgotten about the tolls and said, Come in, we'll hide you from the Nazi invasion. We'll secret you in our basements. We'll protect you in our rocky cliffs and dwellings. They could have done that. They could have said, you've lost everything you have. We'll share with you some of ours. So that you can recover. And perhaps your children can one day go back to Jerusalem and be a part of the great opportunity to rebuild that great city of God. But they didn't do that. They took advantage of them. They rejoiced in their suffering. They said, serves you right. Raise it to the ground. We'll take all we can get. There was no love in their hearts for their neighbors, their ancient brother. And as a consequence, God said, I'm going to wipe you off the face of the map. Jerusalem will be rebuilt. But Edom will disappear from the face of history. Friends, when people are suffering, 
We need to be the first on the scene. Offer compassion. We need to be there with love. We need to be there to show the grace of God. We need to be there to extend His mercy. Who knows? But what in the disaster, God will save their lives eternally and they will live forever in His presence. If the goodness of God does not lead to repentance, oftentimes the judgment of God will. And we are the ambassadors of mercy, presenting the gospel of Jesus Christ, loving our neighbor as we love ourselves, and having the compassion and tender mercies. God loves sinners. Even when He judges them. Even when He hates their sin. Yes, even on the final day of judgment when they're cast into the lake that burns forever. They were made in His image. He will never forget them. And He longs for them to come over and enter the kingdom and not go to the lake of fire. And our mission is to carry the message. You see, Obadiah is just as contemporary as today's newspaper, isn't it? It has a message for us. And a great lesson. We need to take it to heart. We are ambassadors of grace. Friends, we're getting closer to the return of Jesus Christ. Carrie was leading us in some songs about that. Jesus is coming soon. I don't know when, but I can see the signs. And we're nearer than we probably know. Judgment is only going to increase. Wars and rumors of wars, volcanoes, earthquakes, typhoons, storms, tidal waves. These things are only going to accelerate plagues and worldwide crises. This is only the beginning of birth pangs. Let us not forget that our role is not to figure out the purpose of every tornado, but to carry the message and the love and the compassion of Jesus Christ wherever people suffer, that perhaps some will come to know Him. Judgment is the Lord's, but we live in the day of grace. Let's preach it from the rooftops. Thank You, Lord, for Your Word to us. Encourage our hearts with it. Teach us to be a humble, gracious, and compassionate people. In the name of Jesus, Amen.